All right, we're here with Dead Cat. Uh, this is Eric Newcomer. Tom and Katie are here. And we have fellow uh, Substacker Casey Newton of Platformer. We're going to sort of just fun episode, talk about a couple different things. Uh, interesting piece in the New York Times about Substack failing to raise funding, which Casey has written about. Snap's stock is down 45% in the last month. Another uh, interesting happening in the sort of social world. And then uh, it feels like we haven't talked about Elon Musk on this podcast enough. It's been nice. <laughs> you know, we, th- we thought about other things, uh, even though that is the dominant story. And, uh, the ratings Casey, have dipped. The producers told us you got to do, do Elon again. <laughs> Casey, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, gang. How are all things that how are things in, in platformer world these days? Since we're, we're going right into Substack, what's uh, what's the latest from the platformer, which I don't read, by the way. Um, Thank you. But my understanding is that it's like some sort of French language uh, <laughs> newsletter that covers like Algerian startups. That's basically it. Yeah. You guys broke the big uh, news about Flink and Kajoo. So congrats yeah. on that. <laughs> if you want all the latest on on sort of the TikTok behind the Flink Kajoo deal, uh, go to platformer.news and subscribe. Things are going really well at Platformer. Like, I I truly do wish I could go back and talk to the version of myself that was thinking about leaving my job and starting a Substack and just explaining, like, here's everything that's going to happen after you do this. And it it would have made the decision a lot easier. So uh, very happy to be uh, doing this independent thing. Well, I I remember talking to that version of you because I called, I forget if I text you and then we got on the phone, Casey, because you had your newsletter at The Verge and... I, you know, I was at Bloomberg, uh, and so I, I got on the phone with Casey, and honestly, I had no idea he was about to start Platformer, though it made sense. And I was like, "Oh, I think I'm going to quit my job and like start a Substack." Like, do you think that's crazy? And Casey's like, <laughs> Casey I'm, I, "I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> a Substack." <laughs> Thankfully, I feel like uh, they're pretty different. I mean, we're, we're both right about tech broadly, but I'm very money oriented. You're very platform oriented. We have sort of. Are, are different enough spins that it, we don't feel like uh, competition. But we also have <laughs> names worth ER. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's Casey, true. do you feel competitive with Eric? Like, tell us. The well, he's dominating, <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> I, I, feel huge, I feel hugely competitive with Eric. I mean, the whole reason I came on this podcast is I want people to hear my voice and be like, why am I subscribing to Eric's publication? I need to get this platformer thing. Joke's on newcomer because this is a free product. So this is doing oh, okay. nothing right. for Eric. We need to run You're the just inviting of, competition on. We need to run the sort of New York Times style uh, daily ad. You know, the daily is free, but what really pays for this is if you subscribe. <laughs> so subscribe uh, to newcomer. And then if you're already a subscriber to newcomer, you can subscribe to platformer. Yeah. So Katie I, and I are collecting nothing from this. I just want that out there. No, <laughs> I mean, just to like be a little bit serious about this, you know, I grew up reading the LA Times, had a lot of really great columnists there. And I just basically lucked out that I lived in an area that the LA Times like delivery trucks reached. And as a result, I got access to these great columnists. There are all these people now that, you know, particularly now that the newspaper industry is going through such a hard time that don't have access to those people. Um, But we have the internet. And so you can just find the columnist that is right for you. And you pay them what I think is a pretty reasonable low monthly rate and you keep a columnist that you love in business. So like, I just love that that model of the world that that we're living in. And then the people who are really good at it are like able to live lives beyond their wildest dreams now. 
Does it sadden you though that this might be gutting your beloved LA Times? Um, it, it yes, I, I'm, I'm very sad about you know what's what's happening to newspapers. I also, as somebody who worked in newspapers for the first ten years of my career, was very frustrated by how slowly they were evolving. Right, even though the writing what was on the wall, um, you know, some publications like the New York Times in particular, I would say, have done an incredible job of of remaking themselves. And you know, more recently, publications like the Washington Post, I think, have really kind of risen to the challenge. So I think you can do it, but it's a lot easier for the big national, international publications to do it than the local pubs. And that and is, is it really the, zero yeah. sum? Like Katie, I, I feel like that's sort of the media old newspaper sort of frame do you see this like do you think really like a dollar going to a substack writer is a dollar lost to to a newspaper i don't think that's how i would formulate it i was just saying that the idea of people getting news from places other than traditional media right and at large siphons away well on the local newspaper level the thing that the thing that sustained them for the longest time was the sports section Right. Like that was, you know, people had a relationship to the beat writer for the teams that they followed and the columnist there. And then there was that awful period for the athletic when they were on their way up. And uh, the CEO, Alex Mather, said very inelegantly to The New York Times, you know, our goal is to bleed all of the local sports, <laughs> uh, you know, like all the local p- papers from their sports sections. Which right. Is, At least Substack believes local. Happened. Like they're Good trying. thing that The New York Times bought The Athletic. <laughs> yeah. How did nobody like m- make that connection when that whole deal was going down? It was hysterical. I mean, uh, and I like Alex a lot, but like, it was like this bull moment of like, well, I guess you didn't bleed the right person. <laughs> to, to frame the news, which is really a not news story, the New York Times, Ben Mullen reported that, you know, Substack had been out trying oh, to was raise. was Ben Mullen? And That's funny. Already making waves at the Times. Their media reporter. Yeah. And, you know, they've been trying to get valued at $750 million to a billion, and the round didn't come together that they had revenue about 9 million in 2021 and you know i think important context for this is Andreessen Horowitz has invested in both Substack and Clubhouse right and Clubhouse which has like no revenue raised at a 4 billion dollar valuation was extremely buzzy and Substack has sort of been the sort of i don't know ugly stepchild I'll, i'm sure they'd hate that but you know just isn't as glamorous hasn't got the attention but i mean substack's producing revenue and has seems to have more staying power than clubhouse um anyway so casey has written about this he is relieved maybe uh that substack didn't didn't get the money so casey what's what's sort of your argument there yeah i mean you know we've all written stories about startups that raised too much money and investors' hopes got too high. And then the investors started to meddle and gave them a bunch of horrible ideas for what they should do next. And that almost always comes at the expense of the the user base, right? And, you know, earlier this year, Substack released an app. By default, that app turned off email notifications. So like if you downloaded the Substack app, you would no longer get platformer in your inbox. The whole reason I wanted to do this line of work was I I had this direct connection with my audience. So you could already see that potentially going away. Uh, after you know, I and others wrote about this. Substack wound up walking that back. You they can just imagine people who op- who got the app from email, which was insane. Like I, I agree, yeah. but they reversed course. But you they can imagine. Course. You can imagine a world where they were suddenly, you know, they had an extra $100 million of venture capital and two years go by and their investors are getting really nervous. And they say, you know what, actually, I think it's time for us to take 20% of your revenues or like whatever. So 
I, I think that like they're still in this. Phase. And all of a sudden, then platformer is writing on another platform, you know, instead of an email. That that's the risk, right? You know, I mean, I actually think that over the years, uh, Substack's ten percent cut has has come to look more and more reasonable compared to what other people um, take, which you know is maybe something we could talk about. But you know, but basically, I I'm relieved that they didn't raise this money because I think they have, still have some basic structural questions to ask themselves about what they're doing to get. The, that kind of core model working. And I don't think you need another $100 million to do it, right? Like they need to figure out how to live within their means and and really figure out how to grow that base of users and um, get themselves to like sustainability. I strenuously disagree with you. <laughs> I mean, it feels like for once the media business had a chance to have blitz scaling at its back and then we don't even... We don't get the money. I, I mean, well, I mean, what? How? What would they do to Blitzscale? They would just go out and pay like five thousand more people, a hundred thousand right. dollars, to see if they would turn into right. real well, businesses. I mean, did you, was the, and I didn't read the full story, but what was the? Uh, as is my signature on the show, but what was the plan with the money? I mean, what did they sort of see as the value in? in I, I don't know that that again? was reported. I do. I think a, a key point is that Substack has said that they're toning down their Substack Pro program. Uh, their VP of Comms was on a. Twitter spaces with me and she she said that and I think that's interesting because I was really I mean I didn't I didn't get money from them they offered me like a weird small loan that was definitely not like a sign of strong belief in newcomer but um you know I think it sort of incentivizes you know uh substacks that don't have sort of business front and center to start and then potentially not succeed but but to answer the question of how I'd like money to be spent to to build ways for them to drive audience, which is the thing that they haven't haven't done really. Yeah, so you know you can work out a couple interesting numbers based on what we know about Substack. So they uh, just passed a million paying subscribers in uh, November, I believe, and we now know, according to Ben uh, Ben's reporting, that they had about nine million dollars in revenue. So, so n- nine million in revenue. I mean, just back of the envelope that. Assuming five million of that is coming from Barry Weiss, <laughs> maybe two million is coming from like the bundle of newcomer platformer Glenn Greenwald, <laughs> Matt Taibbi. The rest is probably Alex Berenson. Is that they, mostly the revenue breakdown no, there? They they have they have more publications make, making more money than I than I think people like can. And you're can overstating name. Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss is number uh, six. I just don't want to unfairly compliment her because it, <laughs> letters from an American Kevin, Heather Cox Richardson is one on politics. The dispatch is two. Matt Tybee's three. The bulwarks for Glenn Greenwald's five, and she's six. Anyway, just fact check there. But if you look at the numbers, what that means is that most people who subscribe to a, pub, a Substack publication are only subscribing to one, right? Because most of these things are somewhere in the like seventy to hundred bucks a year range. But you know, Substack's whole—you know—one one of their big promises is you come be a part of this network, and we're going to make it so easy for you to get customers because they will likely already be a customer of another Substack, and from there it's just a couple of taps, and all of a sudden, you know, we charge their credit card for yours as well. Um, you know, and, and they even will show you like a graph of where your people come from, and you know, to hear Substack tell it, they're sending a lot of like existing Substack customers. But wait, and then, by the way, maybe they are. You know, like I—I'm I, I, not saying that I doubt them, but it doesn't seem like most people are having that experience, and I—and I do think it's like a long-term risk to them. Hmm. What, I mean, we've sort of seen this particular game play out so many times in the media of building up a subscriber base and everyone's looking for the next wave that's going to help you grow the business. And the obvious one is just bundling, right? It's all the same playbook. 
And I'm assuming when you're talking about growing audience, growing subscriber base, that's clearly going to be on the table. Uh, they're going to try to bundle you guys with with other people of similar topics, or maybe even have like a diverse bundle. So you I'm can, skeptical. I don't think it's a great idea, to be honest. I, I think it's a way to juice numbers without juicing revenue. Well, a, a key a key feature that they've rolled out is recommendations, where instead of some sort of viral algorithm, writers can recommend other writers. And that's been driving a bunch of subscribers to people, including myself. And it's a great, great orga- organic feature where writers can decide what they want to do. That's like sort of an old yeah, school blog like you, where like on the right-hand side of the page, right, you have exactly. like, these are the blogs I like to read. <laughs> blog roll, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> which, no is, new which, ideas, Katie. which was kind of like the pre, it's sort of like, um, it's, it's preparing people psychologically for bundling. Is what you it's think? Doing. I mean, well, yeah, because think about how this has played out with cable, right? There was cable. Everybody hated it. Like, why do I have to have all this garbage just to get ESPN? And then there was like Netflix and Paramount Plus and Amazon video. And then people woke up one day and they're like, I'm paying, wow, hundreds of dollars a month for all of these individual streaming networks. And that has to come to an end at some point. And so how that comes to an end and how it shakes out is still being worked out. And I think that for direct-to-consumer news, it's sort of a similar idea. So if I'm paying $150 for newcomer and Casey, whatever Casey's charging me, $100, it's an insane bargain. I'm practically giving the thing away. It's it's 33% off the newcomer price. And so I- Yeah, but I'm helping people make money. Like I am publishing decks from billion dollar funds. $250, just between the two of you, it's $250 I invest in my retirement account in every company Casey writes about. (laughs) And say that I also want to pay Heather Cox Richardson and I also want to pay, you know, Matt Taibbi. Suddenly I'm like, why am I paying $1,000 a year for news. But like Casey said, most could I not, could I not just pay less money and subscribe to the wall street journal? I mean, so that's sort of where you cut, what you come to, which is why bundling feels like the natural end point comes from the New York times reporter, (laughs) but it's where it's going to, I mean, it's coming guys. There's, there's zero chance in my mind that that subsect is not. I think what you're under underestimating is the idea that like niche audiences like, how would okay. I make more money off that? Like, I have a sustainable business now. I'm making more than I make at Bloomberg. I feel like, sure, you guys are my friend. Media people subscribe to a lot of newsletters because you need to be, stay up on media. But I think you guys are the sort of outlier cases in subscription behavior. Most of the people subscribing to Newcomer, you know, yeah, I publish some exclusive financial information that they want to read and they sign up to see that. Like, they're very, they're they're in sort of the VC world. You know, they're interested in... So I, I just, I don't think they're like subscribing to newcomer because they're like these general consumers who want, want some very sophisticated VC right. take. And I, I think that you, that it's probably a good idea. And you and Casey obviously know this better than I do to think about the financial fortunes of the folks who are writing for Substack versus the financial fortunes of Substack as a company. Sure. So it's true that you two might be doing quite well. But how is Substack doing overall? And I think that that's where the decision-making around something like bundling comes into play, less so than how you or Casey are personally doing. And the bundling aspect might not be for you, but if there are, say, you could guess hundreds of people on Substack writing about their grandma's favorite recipes, wouldn't it make sense to put all those grandmas together with all their delicious recipes? Yes. So I, I actually, I mean, the example that I, we were talking about this in, in uh, my Discord server this morning and uh, food writers was the example that I use. So what I'd like to see 
Substack Consider is to offer essentially optional bundling tools so that if you are a, a recipe writer, a food writer with a relatively small following, you want to go in with nine or 10 or 12 other people that are doing the same thing, help each other grow, you might actually sort of come out ahead in all of that. And at the very least, like if I were Substack, that's where I would start because right, because if they come out you know, tomorrow and they say, we're introducing a Netflix model and it's like all you can eat for 10 bucks a month, you know, people like me and Eric are going to run screaming from that. It would destroy our businesses. Yeah. Right. Right. And I remember Apple tried that with their news bundle with Apple News, and they couldn't get almost any publications to sign on board with it. I think just the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal, but it was a fiasco. They couldn't get the other big name pubs that they would have wanted. But the interesting thing about, you know, this bundle of niche products is that in television, it doesn't work. I mean, like the bundle model only works because ESPN is the most popular cable channel in the country and it charges significantly more than any other network uh, to the cable distributors. And they kind of keep the whole business afloat, right? It's like you want ESPN and we're going to bundle everything else in there. And it's part of the kind of hard ass negotiations that the media companies have. And, you know, with the like different skinny bundles, which was a whole failed model, there were attempts to make, you know, non-ESPN bundles. There was this company still out there called Philo, which was, you know, they would pejoratively uh, refer to it as the loser bundle because <laughs> it just had AMC and, you know, HGTV and all the Discovery other networks. The, the and viewers networks. were losers or the company? <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not casting judgment myself as to who was the real loser here, but, uh, but yeah. And, and so I maybe mean, it's one of those rare things where everybody loses. That's yeah. great. <laughs> uh, that happens so often in media. <laughs> But, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the trouble with the idea, I, I love the idea of what you're proposing, Casey, and it obviously is like, you know, helping to rising tide, lifting the weaker boats. I don't know. And kind of like a much more organic way to do customer acquisition. Yeah. But it's just, there's no history of it working. And that's, and that's, I, yeah. I will say though, slightly related, if somebody offered me a channel and don't care how it came to me streaming, whatnot, that was only like murder shows. I'd be very excited. True crime shows. If I could get NCIS, Law and Order, like CSI, et cetera, all in one channel, how much How much money do I have? I mean, it. I think all those shows are on CBS. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate bundle. Well, uh-huh. what about like that Shudder? Like, I mean, Shudder is a, a streaming service that's just horror movies, right? And it's probably mm. not like a massive success, but I don't know. It's in business. Yeah, it's okay. It's part of AMC. But but I say I guess the reason I bring it up to you guys is that like it would be a little bit strange to bundle newcomer with grandma cooking blogs or or you know platformer with auto blogs or something. But they they kind of need those anchor publications in there to kind of prove larger value. And, and, and I think and that's going to be where the negotiation happens. Maybe eventually they will go to like the very biggest uh, sub stacks and just offer them a great deal and say, you know, you're making a million. We'll pay you a million and a half if you're part of this bundle, you know, because we know you probably wouldn't make that as part of the bundle uh, just by the basic math. But, you know, we want to incentivize more people subscribing. Like I could see them doing that. But, you know, we've been talking about this from the, the sub stack perspective, which is good and fine. But you think about it from the writer's perspective, it's like, they also just have a bunch of writers on their platform now who could leave and just do this sustainably forever. And it's not clear that you actually need a Substack to keep the business going, right? Like, you, you know, journalists are so cynical and pessimistic about every business model that I think they um, Amen. sort of underestimate. Now I see it that I'm gone. Just, just Tom, just Tom. They, they underestimate what a great 
job this can be, right? You think about how big the internet is. If you can find 2,000 people to pay you 100 bucks a year, you're making more money than almost any media company would pay you for any reason. There's there's a lot of groups of 2,000 people on the internet. Um, so like to me, the really exciting thing here is, you know, I, I hope Substack is, is, has, has a long successful run. You know, I have no plans to leave it. It would be inconvenient to do so. But like also, I'm not terrified about them going out of business because to me, the model works. Like I found my my few thousand people and I can just do this as long as I want to. And we have a direct relationship with Stripe. I mean, part of the reason Substack has been able to recruit everyone has been the fact that you can leave. I, I, I don't think they would do a bundle that would infuriate writers. I think they would have to do it in a sort of additive way. And I want to talk about other things, but I do think the long tail issue is going to be a problem for Substack if I had to make my business case against them. I think, you know, in anything, you know, influencer economy, sort of celebrities win and the t- the top sort of get sort of really, really rich and everybody else is sort of screwed. I mean, I feel like I'm sort of I mean, we're, you can analyze like the Substack lists and sort of see, and I do think there's a sharp drop off, you know, from one, two, three, four, five, and then by by ten, it's probably much lower. And so, if they can't get the long tail to make good money, then they'll have less, fewer sort of new Substacks coming in with a shot at being sort of the celebrity writer, or I don't know, Casey, what's your view on this? Well, so let's talk about the long tail. The number one Substack publication is a guy that writes about how to manage your career as an engineer, basically. If you pitch is this Is that column, the number one overall? Yeah, yeah on technology. Yeah. Oh, on tech, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you were to pitch that column to any mainstream publication, that's say that's way too niche, get out of here, our readers would hate it. Right. And this guy's, this guy's easily pulling Pragmatic in engineer. like 450, 500,000 bucks a year, right? So if there are more uh, niches like that, then I think the long tail is actually going to be really successful. Now, you know, we could talk about the characteristics that these really successful businesses have. They write for rich people. Continuing education for rich people. They tend to be something that you can expense, right? They tend to be something that helps you make more money. So like not, you know, if if you want to write a poetry diary, it's probably not going to succeed to the same degree. But... I think it's much more productive to think about this in terms of like what sorts of publications could work and who, you know, who is the person that could write that publication. And then I think you'd have a bunch more people making half a million bucks a year. And one thing that I really like about this part of the conversation is that it shows that you can be really successful in an online platform where you have a broad audience where anybody can access you without being a sensationalist, an insane person, fighting with people, and just being generally wretched, aka the Twitter model. Whereas instead, it's like you just if you just want to nerd out with a bunch of people who have your general nerdy interests, that's great. And actually, I don't know that a poetry version wouldn't be successful because there's a part of me that's like, well, if it were Edna St. Vincent Millay, maybe I would give them a little bit of money. <laughs> like, but that's so great. That makes me so happy. And one of the biggest viral hits on Substack of the year has been uh, someone who's just sending out chapters of uh, Dracula. Like, uh, I don't know if it's one like a couple times a week or every day, but it's become a huge Tumblr meme because, of course, Dracula was, a, a, I believe it's like an epistolary novel, you know. And so you know, people are on Tumblr, you know, because they know what's going to eventually happen to the narrator or just sort of like... Don't tell me. Are having, me. And, and we won't spoil it here on the podcast, but uh, people are having a lot of fun uh, just sort of in the in the lead up to this. Um, and again, you know, that's just like a public domain work that someone is has repurposed. Is that person making a bunch of money? Or? I don't know if they're monetizing it uh, or or not. I mean, you know, it's a public domain work, but, but they still could. 
Uh, but yeah, you know, people are being creative with it. And, and I appreciate Katie bringing up the fact that like, you know, we as as journalists who live on Twitter all day, you can come to believe that Twitter is the only way that you could ever do media and that every single story has to have the elements of scandal and outrage dialed up as far as they can possibly go to have any chance at all of getting attention. And like, meanwhile, like, I don't know, just like go look at the headlines on the stories that Eric and I write. They're like beautifully boring. Like they never <laughs> overpromise anything. I know, sometimes it's, I try to make yeah. them more boring. It's just, I, I don't have a very... Uh... Yeah, I'm not I, no, salacious I, I, enough. I, no, I, I, I was like looking think, at your most reads, yeah. by the way, just yeah. out of curiosity. Every time there's a battle or it's uh, yeah. the, the battle at Signal or like the war yeah. over, um, what, what's that other, the company you cover? Basecamp. So well, Basecamp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, look, I... You know, and I've I've written the, those stories. I would argue that the material in there justifies the headline. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, just, I think I'm like the trick is just not to constantly over rotate. Like I think we could all name publications that just always sort of put the most absurd headline on everything, and it and it just shows their deep insecurity that um, there's actually enough material in there to get anyone to justify clicking. Tom so. works for yeah, yeah. Long. Listen, <laughs> sometimes we have to A/B test those headlines to find out which is the most absurd, uh, but. We know when we've hit it. Um, I will say something, you know, just to both of you guys and, and generally where the industry has gone over the last few years that I also find very heartening is the rise of the reported column, I think, is very much attached to the Substack model. And, you know, we saw people at like Ben Smith at The New York Times do a great job at this. But I actually think it's a great direction for journalism to go because I don't think there's any turning back the clock on people's opinions being out there as journalists. I mean, Twitter is fundamentally broken that uh, and it, for, for, for most reporters, I think. Um, but what I, what I like so much about, you know, newcomer you know, and, and Casey, I remember when you started, uh, I think before it was called platform or when you started your newsletter and you basically laid out like, here's the way, like here, here are my views on the world of the internet. And like, I believe that Facebook has caused a huge amount of harm. I think Fox news has caused more. You probably have other tenants in your, you know, you know, your, your Hadith that explains it more in depth. But uh, I think that's an important thing that has come out of th this whole trend, um, which is, you know, you can still ally yourself with a political or social worldview, but also get like, you know, general, general nutrition from it that is valuable to at least like supporting your worldview and like maybe giving you opportunities to think about things. So there's my, there's my comment. Absolutely. You Couldn't, thank you. Thank you for saying that. But by the way, that idea of sort of like laying out, here's where I come from, that's an idea that I stole from Jay Rosen, the NYU professor. Um, anyone can do it. Uh, I highly encourage journalists to think about doing it. It's, you know, it's it's enormously clarified to just like look at a blank Google Doc and say like, what do I actually think about the world? And just try to write it down. And once you have, um, I think it just, it brings real integrity to your work. You know, I get so frustrated by all these really talented reporters that I follow on Twitter, whose like whole mode of engaging with the world is just like basically quote tweeting stuff with LOL and LMAO. <laughs> and like, that's like, that's their only act. Right. And like, if, if you're a reader of those publications and that's all you see those reporters doing, it's really hard to believe that they're there to do anything, um, you know, about the world, but laugh at it. And I think that that actually undermines the credibility of journalism. So uh, I appreciate what you said, Tom. And yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of the reported column. Like Ben Smith is basically my North Star every time I pick up the phone. Whoa. Same. <laughs> we, both, we both feel that. I mean, I love Ben, but I think he would love to hear that. <laughs> I told him the other day. <laughs> and And for me, I mean, Casey, a little further along in his career. But for me, like, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to get a reported column 
job. And so this was a way to sort of force the issue. And thankfully, you know, I got enough subscribers to justify it, but it allowed, you know, that's a job that's sort of in some ways, not the case with Ben, but for a lot of reporters given to reporters once they're tired of reporting a little bit, but happy to have it sort of a little earlier in my career that I might've been able to at a traditional media outlet. Also, uh, you know, beyond just the reported column, we also support the just very good and informative column, which maybe could transition us to uh, Elon time and uh, and Matt Levine's <laughs> continuing domination of the most entertaining I know, so good. <laughs> analyses of whatever bullshit Elon is throwing out at us uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, he comes in armed with facts. That's what makes Matt really different from Elon. <laughs> well, you trust him in yeah, a way more than the financial system or report. You know, it's like, oh, this 100%. guy is the decider of what how the world works. And I read it. Anyway. What should we say about Elon? Should we should we go into it? Ugh. Should we save it for the end? I, I sort of jumped to it. But no, no, no. We, had- let's do that. I mean, I think it's a... I feel like the Jack Dorsey Elon thing has been the biggest recent development. I mean, Casey, as a close watcher of Twitter, like what the, what's wrong with Jack Dorsey? I mean, he like, I mean, he's basically betraying the guy he put in as CEO. It's like Parag has been CEO for, I don't, I don't know the guy, maybe he is bad, but like, He's been in it for like a couple of months and now Jack's like, remember Elon the episode where Elon none of us could remember Parag's name? We, that was yeah, very exactly. sad. It's yeah. like, we need a, Jack Dorsey's position is ideally Twitter would be controlled by no one and it should be this utopian anarchistic uh, world. But since we can't have that, let's have a fascism of Elon Musk on Twitter instead. And only the strongest among us can rule like what what is, the guy has the most incoherent worldview? Well, I feel like that it was so crystallized when after the Elon deal was finally announced, and Jack posts uh, a link to Radiohead's "Everything in Its Right Place" as like some sort of arrival point for this whole deal, and is like, "Did you read the lyrics to that song? Have you ever listened to that song before?" And didn't just look up. A, you know, a song name that had like right in it. Cause I would not call that the, like the utopian ideal of like any situation. Why? Yeah. Why? It's, it's, uh, also, yesterday I like... woke up sucking on a lemon. It's repeated multiple times in that song. I mean, it's like Radiohead's dystopic, you know, kid a record. Nothing is positive that would be referenced in that song or album, but go, go, go off Jack. There's like also this beautiful symmetry in just like Jack and Elon using their companies to just like um, buy things that please them, whether it's Elon using Tesla to buy uh, Solar City or Jack having Square buy title, like just like using these like public companies as piggy banks. But, you know, as far as like what is Jack thinking, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people about this. The best theory that I've heard is basically. Jack was all but forced out of the company, right? These activist shareholders came on. They said, you're not hitting any of these targets. And so last November, he's basically told like, you, it's time for you to go. You're, you're not even trying to do any of the things that you promised to do. And so he leaves and tells the world that, oh, you know, it's my choice. I'm stepping down. And he did get to handpick his successor. And so he picked Parag, who had played a big role in this Blue Sky project, um, which was, you know, trying to turn Twitter into some kind of decentralized protocol. So at the time, it seems like Jack thought Parag was the best bet to create the Twitter of his dreams. But then a few months later, he hears that Elon is acquiring stock and is interested in the company. And of course, they've been friends for a while. And so, you know, Elon starts gathering, you know, a position in the company. And then if you look at the proxy statement, like the day after they reach a standstill agreement for Elon to stop buying shares of Twitter, Jack goes to him and is like, why don't you just buy it? 
And so, like, Jack, according to the regulatory filings, is the person that upset the apple cart and and triggered this whole thing. And it's because he really wants to get this thing off the public market. And I think that's because he has all this scar tissue from the fact that he was forced out of his own company twice. And so it's like, if he can't run it, then no one can. And so it's just this very emotional reaction. That's wonderful. (laughs) There does seem like this view from Jack through his tweets that like he was the CEO, but he couldn't really do what he wanted because ultimately sort of there are the, there are obviously moves that you have to make if you're doing things for the public markets. And so you do those and like, you just can't be as crazy as he would have wanted. I mean, yeah, that's sort of capitalism, you know, but like, isn't he still going to be under capitalism as a private company or I, I don't know. I guess the question here is how much do you let Jack off the hook for the idea that he wasn't able to do what he truly wanted as CEO because he had to be sort of a good steward of the company as a public company CEO. Right. But it, I mean, it's such nonsense. You know, no one had more of an opportunity than Jack Dorsey to shape the future of Twitter. You know, he co-founded it. He was CEO of it twice, uh, you know, <laughs> most recently for six years. He was also chairman of the board. So for this guy to come out after all of that and just be like, yeah, like it would have been, you know, Twitter never became what it should have. It's like, that is literally your fault. That could not be more your fault. Right, right. It would be kind of like if Dean Baquet were like, God, while I was running this show, we really never did what we should have. <laughs> Crazy <laughs> yeah. sounding. That would sound insane. Complete. And like Jack just gets a pass, even though he's, you know, he was, he was a halftime CEO, which was also his choice, right? Like that was, that's what makes it even what? more calling. Oh, why does he get a pass? It fascinates me so much more than any other executive of any industry I've ever covered. He gets a pass every time. Right. Well, I mean, so Elon also gets this pass, right? That's so true. it's like another thing that's that they true. have in common. But this is a big reason why the activist investors came on in 2020 to begin with was that they were sick of it. And it was clear that Twitter was underperforming in part because they had a terrible CEO who was barely paying attention to the company. So it did actually wind up, it, there, there was a consequence for him, which was that he lost his job, but he can't stop meddling with it. And you know now you know, the, the, the twist in the saga this week is that he's apparently going to roll his equity over into the new Elon company you know, and that'll probably be a big position and he may be able to actually, you know, continue to exert control on the future of Twitter. I mean, everything you just said is, is in so many ways, like very vindicating of the Nick Bilton book on Twitter, where he describes Jack Dorsey as basically like a, a scheming moron. And it's, I remember when that book came out, people were like, that's so mean. Jack's such a good guy. Like, but I don't know, like, I would say that that book is not looking so terrible. And I wonder what, was it about Jack Dorsey that for that huge chunk of time, people so wanted to defend him and protect him? I don't, I kind of don't get it. I mean, well, when, I mean, you know, when, when you tell Nick Bilton who you are, believe him the first time. <laughs> <laughs> there, look, there, there is a, a tradition in, uh, of, uh, of founder worship in, in Silicon Valley. And if you go back to 2013, 2014, Jack really did look like this transformational figure who'd had two incredibly powerful ideas, right? Twitter and Square. And, you know, until very recently, like Square looked like an even more amazing company than Twitter in, in basically every way, right? So there's this idea that once you're lucky, twice you're good. And, and by that standard, how could Jack Dorsey be anything but good? Um, but I think the past five years or so have really taken a lot of, of shine off of that because he's become so disconnected you know, he's remotely managing these companies in between meditation retreats. Um, it, it's just not, he just doesn't seem to be 
as serious as a person as he did in like 2013, 2014. Mm. But that point of view Fair. is why it's probably so convenient for him to have this remove from Twitter as, you know, the CEO and kind of say, why is it not achieving its full potential? What is going on here? It's like, well, you, first of all, are distant from the company physically for a time when he, you know, decided he was going to move to Africa. But also it's just so, it's such a perfect microcosm of this era that people are refusing to take any responsibility for their actions and instead speaking very, you know, uh, for, in like an illusory way of how they are, you know, what is the sphere of influence that they have on things and who is responsible for the larger but, consequences of the world? I mean, it's perfect. He is a man of our time. This deal is still not happening. Or <laughs> do, you, do you have a bet, Casey? I mean, the stock market is clearly not certain it's happening, but sort of... The, the odds seem like they went up this week. I mean, so really weird thing about this week is last week was the week of chaos and Elon making it seem like the deal was never going to happen. This week, he got rid of the margin loan that he was going to take out against his Tesla shares, suggesting he was going to you know, line up more people to take equity in the company. So, th- I mean, this week, it was like a completely different Elon Musk. He stopped you know, tweeting weird stuff about the company for the most part and started tweeting about Elden Ring instead. So, you know, if, if you want to have like a musk meter that's like, how likely is this? It's like this week, you know, it sort of swung over to the, eh, maybe it goes through side of things. Do you think is it, he can get outside money? Yeah, I mean, he's already lined up, you know, billions uh, of equity. Being but a lot of his debt, is, right? What's that? Or, uh, yeah, some of so, a lot of the deal was supposed to be debt. Uh, yeah, I think it'd be a combination of debt right, and right, equity. Right. But like, I mean, like Andreessen, I think, was going to take equity, right. yeah? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And Sequoia, but I, they weren't that big. And If you are an employee at Twitter right now, how do you what exactly is your commitment to this company and to whatever mission you think you are attached to right now? I, I just, it blows my mind. It's one thing to sort of see the circus playing out on TV or, or wherever, but to decide that you are part of something greater, that there is still, you know, beyond just like clocking in and out and, and you know, pushing code, like actually feeling like there is a light here that's going to result in like the greater good of the company and maybe even the world. Like what, what where is your brain at? Well, I mean, the, you know, Twitter is this very important product. It's important every day. I mean, you know, look at all the horrible things that happened this week and how essential Twitter has been to understanding those events in real time. So I'm sure plenty of people who work at the company are just happy to continue doing that. At the same time, I also know a lot of other people are looking for other jobs right now. A lot of other executives have quit in the past few weeks. We're going to see a lot more of that in the weeks to come. You know, keep in mind, Prague only had, what, three months running this company before this whole catastrophe started to unfold. So he didn't really have much time to rally the troops. And as soon as he did start talking to the, his troops on a regular basis, it was, you know, trying to manage their feelings around this guy with a kindergarten level understanding of content moderation saying he was going to come in and blow up the company, right? So Parag has not been popular among the rank and file. Um, just a very difficult situation. So, Wait, so Parag you know, is not popular either or... I mean, he he was was well liked when he was named Twitter CEO. He's a known quantity there. He's been there for over a decade. People did respect him, but he has not been able to do much since he got to the company in, in terms of improving it, making people feel better about their jobs. He's been firing a lot of people. Yo, have, have we got any of that story, or do you know what? The- you know, I mean, I I think it, it's fairly standard. Like new CEO comes in and cleans house a little bit and wants to pick their own deputies and lieutenants um, who are more loyal to them. Great timing. Yeah, I mean, like, you couldn't I'll, have waited till after the deal went through to to start axing favored top that executives. Would- 
That would make sense to me. I mean, you know, he eventually came forward and said, I have to be prepared for any eventuality. And, you know, and, and I think the subtext there was if this deal falls through, like, do I want to squander three or six months while I have these people who I don't really trust in these positions of high authority? So. I don't know. Uh, what t- give to me the most optimistic outcome? Like if you were to say everything, you know, every- Elon cleans up his act, the deal goes through. What does the ideal version of Twitter look like six to eight months from now? I mean, I think like the best case scenario is that as Elon is confronted with the everyday realities of running Twitter, he sort of speed runs the past decade of all of us learning about why content moderation is good for business and winds up not changing that much of the core product, right? Like when you look at what Elon wants to do with Twitter, aside from what he said about free speech, there are not a lot of big changes that he has proposed. So there's a world in which he runs the company and it doesn't change all that much. I think that's about as good as you can hope for. Like, I don't think he's going to be a transformational leader. You know, Twitter was working fine for him. He's the, you know, number one user on the platform. His businesses are helped tremendously by the fact that, you know, he can promote them there. So why would he change it that much? Yeah. As a side note, that is why it killed me that there was like a spate of op-eds saying like, what we're seeing here is billionaires controlling the media. And, you know, Elon Musk is going to turn Twitter into a megaphone. Is like 80 million followers. What, what, what more megaphone does he need? Like, how does that pass as like smart analysis? <laughs> Twitter is already a megaphone. Yeah, I do not understand the liberal worry about Elon Musk taking over Twitter at all. Like, I just don't see what he does that's so bad. And I would love, I've said this a billion times already, but I'd love for Elon to be culpable for every bad thing that happens on Twitter. Like, especially if he's branding himself as like a Republican. And so you can say, oh, this is... For once, like a conservative has to actually govern something mm. people care about and can be. Oh, you mean like when somebody goes in and shoots a school full of children and posts all the photos and videos on Twitter, or something like that? Maybe, maybe. Who you knows? Mean it would be there, or I don't know what's the. Well, point? you're saying like if he's going to loosen things up and let people right, exactly. be more free about what they post right, and not and moderate people- <laughs> and not censor, and a bunch of crazy ass shit shows up, like people being beheaded. Overseas, well, that, that was you know, maybe maybe he would rethink. Hey, the, you know the Reddit, bad. the Reddit CEO Yishan, you know, had that whole tweet storm that was very popular, which basically had the idea that ultimately, you know, people are forced to to satisfy the consensus of the mob. Right? Is that how you would characterize it, Casey? Or I mean, basically, like there's just a level of public pressure that even the most like true believer conservative wouldn't be able to stomach, like you're saying, Katie, and therefore they would make the same decisions that the good liberals are making. Yeah, I mean, people don't want to believe that there is consumer demand for content moderation, but there is, I promise you. (laughs) Like, consumers love content moderation. I don't don't want to open a social media app and see something insanely dreadful. I don't want that. And the most moderate consumers like that... That, they're the ones who want content moderation because they don't want to be annoyed by the insane, extreme behavior of the fringes. That's what never made sense about Elon's <laughs> view. It's the moderates who want content moderation, not the far left or the far right. Like This is all, we all know, like just hurtling towards a scenario where Tucker Carlson is, you know, arguingly, arguing vehemently towards the need to see beheading videos on Twitter, right? It's just going to be him saying like, the big media companies tell you, you don't want to see it people's heads being chopped off. But actually, you really but actually, you want do. that. You do I want, want to that. see it. My family wants to see it. And your <laughs> yeah. family wants to see it too. Yeah. 
Wait, wait, and the do, families of those who have been beheaded, they also want to see that again. They more than again anyone should be seeing yeah. these videos. Yeah. Casey, yeah. I mean, this is like what Tom's getting at. I mean, and, and you touched on this earlier that like you think that in your mission statement that Fox was worse than Facebook. And it's something I think a lot about. I mean, I don't know, like, but yet there's so much more interest in like understanding how social media companies behave than, than something yeah. like Fox. Or I don't know, how's your thinking on that sort of grown well, as you've been on this? Beat? Like in a, in a certain way, like Fox is very straightforward. Like you just have a bunch of, you know, people going on and like saying horrible things and it, it's not anything other than what it pretends to be. You know, Facebook is not that. Um, it presents itself as sort of being this neutral forum for thought. There are these algorithms that rank things that are extremely difficult to understand. People um, assume the worst about them. They're collecting a lot of data about us personally. They're using it to target ads. So those those are like are like very different things, and it's it should not surprise us that like Facebook has drawn so much more scrutiny. It's also much bigger, right? Facebook's audience is like orders of magnitude bigger than Fox News. Same time, you do a study of like what actually shifts the politics in a country, and it seems like it's it's much more Fox News than than a Facebook, um, you know, by itself. So, you know, I like everything. You know, multiple things can be true. Facebook is a very important subject for study. Um, I write about it all the time. But I'm very leery of people that want to find very simple solutions to systemic problems. And like over the past year, I just feel like we've seen in so many ways that our problems are so much bigger than freaking Facebook. Like you could unplug that thing tomorrow and you would still have the majority of the Republican Party who's turned against democracy. Like you cannot solve that problem at the level of like putting the algorithm on GitHub. Um, and, but a lot of people still tweet about that as, as if that's the case. So but if you unplugged Facebook, I mean, sorry, if you unplugged Fox News, it does feel like. I mean, I think we, I certainly think we should try better. it. Yeah, we should yeah. try it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Katie and I are no comments on that. Yeah, I just I'm, see that's I'm what's like, wrong with that. No, we're not, not recording columnists. I'm if not, you can't I'm not say no that Fox News is the worst thing in the Eric's world. About to say, I'm no commenting because I actually I has somebody who watches probably a lot more Fox News than you do, Eric. Well, I, I watch that, a lot of Tucker clips, certainly, but yeah, that's not the same. You're defending Fox News from first from your actual point of view. I, yeah, as somebody who has to watch it all the time, who works with Fox News reporters in the newsroom at the Justice Department who sees what they report, who reads their stories. I think that the blanket statement, let's try shutting down Fox News is not something that I would actually agree with. Wow. Now, if you said to me, there's something deeply wrong with what's going on on Tucker Carlson's show, let me point you to the 20,000 words that my colleague just wrote about this very issue where he talks about how Tucker Carlson is mainstreaming some of the most virulent and ugly white supremacist and homophobic ideas into mainstream America. I mean, we should also say like the, the, the quote unquote news division of, of, of Fox has done so much to mainstream ideas about, you know, grooming and CRT and all of these freaking boogeymen. Like that is not contained to Tucker Carlson, right? The entire news division, the entire news division is oriented around finding grievance bait to, to feed to conservatives and poison their minds into thinking that Democrats are, you know, trying to destroy civilization. I would, I would argue that that's, first of all, not unique to only Fox, but I would also say that I think that there is a difference between what's going on in the sort of op-ed hours, the, the primetime hours and what's happening during the day. The only issue I take is that Eric wants to say that the reason I don't support his blanket statement is simply because I'm too afraid to say that I agree with him. 
which is not true. Okay. I am. It's shocking to me. I, I, to me, I am too, Fred. To me, Fox News is clearly the worst thing in American culture at the moment and would certainly be the first thing I would want to pull the plug on with, with little ambiguity. And I'm struggling uh, to respond to the argument style that I just need to watch more of no, it? I'm not I, saying I, I, I you need to. What, I'm not saying to that make, you're even to be able to I'm make not, that I'm claim. I'm not even like, saying. I'm not even saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I disagree with you, but for not for the reason you're going to say. You guys want to talk about Snap to close it out? I, I can talk about Snap. Eric always wants to say that I refuse to say I hate Republicans because I'm too afraid to. What Eric doesn't understand is that most of my family is Republican, and I have a lot of friends who are Republicans, which is why I will not say I out of hand hate all Republicans. I grew up in the South, that. Thing. so I think they're deluded. Like I've spent tons of time with them. them. Like, I think and I'm you not, should. I'm just saying I, that. Like, I, I guess the, my preference that you don't say something is because it's your beat uh, makes me more comfortable with than the fact that I have I a friend who's uh, fine, just sort of with terrible people. So yeah, <laughs> it is. It's set out of a place of trying to protect you from saying the things. That I'm, are gonna I'm make gonna spend, me. I'm spending all Memorial Day with Republicans. I'm about to, I'm about to get into a car tomorrow and go spend my whole weekend in a house with Republicans. <laughs> yeah, I mean Republicans can be nice to have as company, but uh, as, as yeah, as someone who like commits very strongly to the fringe view that the channel that I would unplug the first is CNN, uh, that is based entirely. Oh no, that is based entirely on my having to go visit my parents all the time and seeing their <laughs> obsessive watching of CNN. My mom is, watches so much. Nauseating. Anyway, nauseating. It was great talking to you. Unfortunately, I have to run to this other call. But Casey, it was good to see you. Enjoy. It was good to see you, Katie. Bye. Do you want to just finish up like five minutes with Snap so we can end the episode in a, a normal place? <laughs> Casey, you're a cipher. I don't know what your thoughts are at the moment. Oh, I'm, re- I'm ready to go. <laughs> they got reamed after Evan Spiegel put out uh, uh, an internal note and filed with the SEC that they are likely to fall below their projections uh, in terms of revenue next quarter, citing economic headwinds and the massive downturn. And I, look, I don't cover this company anymore. It's been a long time since I've talked to sources there. I have nothing new to really say about the current state of affairs. This seems like an insane overreaction in, yeah. in, in my mind. I mean, Snap is still a growing app, uh, although I still don't fully understand its ad promise um, and, and, and that side of the business. It still kind of confuses me. Um, it makes at least 80% as much sense as any other digital media company. So uh, this is kind of a crazy time where the market is really severely overcorrected uh, against this company. But um, I don't know how long it'll take for stuff to normalize again. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I'm like, you know, uh, I, I have nothing smart to say about like why investors do this thing and don't do that thing. You know, like reporters famously do not play the stock market. So we're like insulated from this. And um, But, you know, if you thought that Snapchat was like a valuable app and Snap was a valuable company six months ago, I don't know why you'd be applying a 40% discount to that today. You know, I guess the only argument is that like multiples have been so inflated for so long that it's like time for them to come back to earth and that, you know, maybe you're going to sort of like overcorrect just a little bit. Um, But yeah, I think I think Snap is probably going to be just fine for the next three or five years. Yeah, there's nothing fundamental that changed about its business or its stickiness with users. Um, I guess maybe my one criticism is like its growth is a little bit 
eyebrow raising, uh, not like in a suspicious way, but it's probably coming from less valuable users that maybe don't denote that they're going to be able to hugely monetize them. But again, this is like the playbook that social media companies have run for the last decade. So there's nothing new here. Yeah, I mean, I will also say that like Snap has been really bad at predicting its revenue for the past couple of years, right? And I think that investors might just be saying the hell with this because they, they, they've been so like far from their guidance uh, so many times now. They, you know, first they're like, App tracking transparency, like, is isn't going to affect us, but like then right. it affected them. But like then they bounced back. But like then they issued a you know corrected guidance, and so it may just be that investors are saying we have no idea what's going to happen with this company. Yeah, just just hold for a bit. And you guys are much closer to it than I am, but it, it does. It feels like a company you know that never wanted to run ads and never got comfortable with the fact that its business is running ads. I don't know. It like. It, it, yeah, I don't know. It's always going to be an ads business, right? Or there's no escaping this sort of ad situation that they've got themselves in. I mean, they're, they made a big bet on e-commerce. Um, you know, like they want to make everything shoppable within the app. Uh, and they're courting creators, which you can monetize in ways that go beyond ads. So I think there's like, you can imagine some different businesses for them. Um but ads are the heart of it right now. As I've said on this show before, and I stand by, um, no one wants to run ads. Ads stink. Ads, are, ads, ads make everything that you've ever liked worse. And so I had complete, um, you know, I, I related as much as I ever could to Evan uh, when he w- believed very strongly that he didn't want to have ads on the platform. But at some point, you just have to give into the business. Every the media business you- in the world, consumers are cheap, you know, Netflix is going to do ads. I just, yeah. It's, and it'll be worse for it. And we're a, we're a worse world because we live in that uh, eventuality. But um, yeah, I don't think they're going to dump ads anytime soon. And uh, I guess my final line here is just buy. Now is the time to buy Snap. <laughs> I have f- full, full endorsement. That's my, that's my, my analyst rating. Cool. Casey, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. Everybody should uh, subscribe to Platformer. Um, yeah. Nice. Nice to hear from you. Yes, thanks for having me on. It was fun uh, tussling with you all. Thanks, Casey. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.